0: Hi, everyone. It's Caitlin Luna, host of Speaking of Psychology. This episode was recorded during APA's Technology, Mind and Society Conference held in October 2019 in Washington, D.C. I was away on maternity leave during that time. So my colleague Kim Mills was a guest host. We hope you like this episode. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Psychology, a biweekly podcast from the American Psychological Association that helps explain how the science of psychology is connected to everyday life. I'm your host, Kim Mills. There's been a great deal of media attention focused on shootings in which a white police officer fired on a black or non-white suspect. Psychology has for years performed research to determine whether racial animus plays a role in such shootings. These studies have usually entailed having participants sit in front of a computer screen and respond to images of suspects who pop up holding a gun or a benign object such as a wallet or a can of soda. These experiments are helpful, but is there a better way to study this phenomenon so we can curb these types of shootings? I'm here today with Dr. John Tawa of Mount Holyoke College who has developed a new and perhaps more realistic method for testing these responses. Dr. Tawa is an assistant professor of psychology at Mount Holyoke where he studies the processes that both hinder and help race relations. He is particularly interested in relations between minority groups such as between blacks and Asians. Dr. Tawa has found that virtual technology is a particularly powerful medium for assessing intergroup behavior. For example, in one of his studies, Dr. Tawa had participants create avatars that resembled themselves and interacted in the virtual world second life. We'll talk in a few moments about what happened between these groups. So Dr. Tawa, let's start by talking about your research into police shootings. Could you describe the design of your study and how exactly it differs from other experiments that don't use virtual reality?
1: Sure, um, yeah, I, I want to just say one thing that I I don't intend it to be better than like a a better method than I think that the the research that you described um, where people sit in front of a computer um, has has been really impactful. I mean that's sort of in I kind of want to say that's established that that is the case that um, people are faster. Uh, to shoot on black suspects. Um, they have greater difficulty differentiating weapons and benign objects in the hands of black suspects compared to white suspects. Um, and and um, archival data, too. Um, I mean, in, starting in 2015, the Washington Post started just um, making freely available online um, every record of any individual killed by the police. Um, And that data is, the raw data is available online. And a quick analysis will show you that black and African-Americans are way overrepresented in that database relative to their population. Uh, They're they're more likely um, than white suspects to be running or or fleeing the scene when they're shot. In fact, about twice as much, twice as likely. Um, and about twice as likely to be unarmed when when they 're killed, so uh, my my point here is that um, in some ways the what what we 're trying to do with VR is um, is not necessarily approach that idea we 're sort of taking that as a as a basis there 's been quite a bit of research that 's established that but what what VR does that 's really exciting and what it has the potential to do is really immerse people in scenarios. Where they may experience things like fear, physiological arousal. Um, they may, for example, have not know necessarily who the suspect is. They might the suspect might come from behind them or from the side. So there's a sort of unexpected element um, that you can't quite get from sitting in front of a from a in front of a computer. Um, and then and then what are real interest is with, then within that context be able to look at what kinds of cognitive processes and what kinds of emotional processes are interacting to create bias.
0: And so what, what do you find and what is different about the brains of people when they're in these situations?
1: Well, uh, I do want to say this, that what we have now is some preliminary data from a sample of about 45 um, participants. Um, none are police officers, about half are criminal justice majors, but but um, so it's just a preliminary sample. Um, and, and I just, uh, you know, I do want to say that. Um, one of the first things, we, we actually just completed our first analysis of that data. Um, and one of the first things that I was interested in looking at was um, about how people's beliefs about the concept of race affect how they interact with suspects in the VR. Um, this, is, this has just been an interest of mine, what we call racial essentialism, the extent to which people think of races as naturally distinct from one another and um, as biologically or genetically different from one another. What we're seeing in other research is that that belief set is really related to a host of really bad intergroup outcomes. People are less comfortable interacting with people across different races. They're less um, likely to make friends across races. They have more difficulty recognizing other people's faces. I mean, just a whole host of bad consequences. So um, yeah, that's one of the first things that I looked at um, was how people's beliefs about race um, impacted their, uh, their, their shooting decisions. And here's one of the interesting things about Behavioral research is that you have so many ways to operationalize outcomes. So this one in particular is something that's been done in 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 those um, previous studies, which is just to look at reaction time. How fast are people when when a when a weapon or a benign object is drawn? What's the amount of time it takes them to decide to shoot? Um, so what we're finding is that when you look at how people interact with the black suspects, uh, that there is a significant um, correlation between beliefs about race as, as distinct and quicker, quicker reaction times. So the more people think of other races as distinct, yeah, that leads to quicker reaction times, but only towards black suspects. When we do the same thing with white suspects at the moment, we don't have any, any correlation.
0: That's kind of amazing. So but but what you're saying then is that you're really not testing with police officers at at this point. It's That's right. it's just an, an average citizen in, That's right. in in a sense, and mm-hmm. you finding similar reactions. So is this something that maybe could help an average citizen understand what's happening in these police shootings? Is it use is the information useful in that respect?
1: That's right. I mean, um, it is my ultimate goal is to, is to be able to do this with police officers. And that's something that's in, in the works now. Uh, and um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's the ultimate goal. Um, but is this useful um, for civilian or non, non-police officers? I think absolutely. Um, one of the reasons that I've in the past been interested in racial essentialism is because I'm an educator. And to me, that's something that you can just teach. You can just teach people that, that this is not what race is. Um, and, and presumably, that should have all types of positive effects. Now, in the past, I've studied things like uh, interactions with diverse others. Um, this is the first time I've really gone into something as um, uh, something you know specifically related to police violence. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: So how prevalent is this notion of racial essentialism, the idea that that race is something biological or genetic?
1: That's a great question. Um, And I can just tell you um, what I know from from a a study that I did using, I'm going to call it a national sample. That might be a little generous. It, It was a sample I collected on Craigslist, basically, targeting major cities in the U S the, the purpose was to get, get outside of a college student sample. Um, and so, um, and to try and get a racially representative, um, uh, sample with age diversity, education diversity. Um, so, th- so I ended up with a sample of about, of close to 600 people, um, and, and asked them a series of questions about, um, their beliefs about race, um, and and not not just the que- <clears throat> excuse me not just the question, do you think race is biological or not? It's it's sort of a um, call it like a depth of essentialist model. So that the the sort of deepest level of essentialism is what we call speciation or the idea, or people thinking that races are actually different species or that they different races have. Um, their own Adam and Eve, for example, that was one item on 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 this test um, uh, or or the I- the idea that races represent different departure points on the evolutionary scale so deep deep level of essentialism that item in a, in our quote unquote national sample that item was endorsed by about twenty five percent of the population um, that's amazing yeah. I mean, where would
0: people get that idea don't they understand what species are I mean I mean I can answer that myself sure. I guess we don't teach science very well
1: sure. Um, let me. I, ha- I have a thought about that, but let me just kind of scale it down a little bit because the 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 sort of less deep uh, how you say it the sort of less deep beliefs were probably endorsed more. So I want to make sure that's clear. Just basic beliefs about ge- uh, what we call genotypic essentialism, the belief that you could for example determine a, uh somebody's race just looking at their bone structure or or through an autopsy um or just by looking at genes or dna that was endorsed by about 50%. wow. yeah. but um yeah, I mean where do these beliefs come from? You know, I mean this is something that I've thought a little bit about it, when you take surveys is it a belief or is it is it is it like an empty set and then somebody gives you a statement and you're and you hadn't thought too much through it, but it sounds right. I mean, that, I, that if that's true, I think that's still impactful mm-hmm. that, that somebody could look at a statement like different races originated at different parts of the earth and 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 you hadn't thought it through ever in your life. And then you say, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, that means something, too. But that's a little bit different yeah. than kind of actively promoting. It. So so that's one thing that's sort of unclear. But I'll tell you that, um, you know, I'm 42 years old. Um And the reason I'm telling you that is to say that when I was in eighth grade, I remember my science textbook telling us about the three races. Um, uh, Where where did you grow up? uh, In in Western Massachusetts. Uh Yeah. Um, And in reading that there were um, mongoloids, negroids, and caucasoids, and as somebody with Japanese heritage and white heritage trying to understood where I fit in. So I guess what I'm saying is, I mean, I don't think I'm that old for you too, but that's what I was taught explicitly. And yeah, that, that, um, so those beliefs were explicitly taught. And then, and then I think we kind of entered like a colorblind era where we just weren't supposed to talk about race, but, but, but we didn't undo those kind of deeply rooted beliefs that I think people held.
0: So when you look at that, when you looked at that question about racial essentialism, um, mm-hmm. demographically or in terms of you know, race and ethnicity, who tended to be, believe more in the idea of essentialism? Was that mm-hmm. white people believe that more? People of color believed it more? How did it come, split up?
1: people of color in my samples so far have had stronger levels of racial essentialism, but it disappears when you control for immigration status. So what I think that might imply is that growing up in a um, more homogeneous environment might actually promote those ideas. Um, And, uh, yeah, that's the most sense that we can make out of that.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the research that you did in Second Life and how you pitted or had um, people create avatars and then pit against each other?
1: Right. Um, this is sort of my first, like, a- attempt to use technology to study... Um, behave, like, to I say, try to study behavior as it's happening rather than relying on self-report or, you know, survey. And uh, And so... In for that study, I had people create um an avatar in the program Second Life, which is a free um more people are familiar with with the program sims, but it's similar to that um except that all the users are online and so you can create an avatar that looks relatively realistic and then you can interact with one another in these in these virtual environments and so um one of my i would say theoretical interests is in terms of how perceived competition for resources creates dissension, particularly between minority groups, it has a little bit of an asymmetric effect in that it um, it impacts minority groups more so than than each minority relationship to the dominant group. And so, um, so when people feel like they're competing for resources, they think of resources as zero sum. So more for me means less for you. More for you means less for me. So what
0: are the, the resources in Second Life?
1: Well, what we had to do is model it, right? So what I did was I had people create these avatars that looked like themselves. They would interact in these groups of about 20 at a time. Um, and then in some conditions, we, some conditions, we called like a utopian condition. Actually, they weren't competing for any resources. Uh, they were just told that at the end of the study, somebody would be randomly picked for a $300 stipend. On the other hand, sometimes what we did was we incur, we said that, well, your job is to kind of assemble a team of people that you think are the most intelligent and hardest working. You're trying to form a business group to simulate this economy. And in the end, the the team, uh, the the people that form the, the strongest groups like that have a better chance of winning a $300 gift card. So now suddenly you're you're interacting with people a little differently because you're evaluating people for how intelligent you think they are, uh, how hardworking you think they are, you, you know. Um, and it dramatically changes how people interact with one another, um, maybe relying on stereotypes, even in, in the virtual world. Um, and so what we saw, one of the things that I liked about doing this in a virtual environment is that Second Life is the everything's on a grid, like an XY coordinate grid. And so you could look at um, actually physical distances between people and how those distances changed over time. And what we saw was that when people were competing for resources, it was the Black and, and the Asian participants that gradually over time moved away from each other. Um, and, but when they weren't competing, actually the Black and Asian participants moved close, closer to one another. Um, and that wasn't actually true about how they moved in relationship to the white participants.
0: So how did they move in relation to the white participants then?
1: There was, uh, in, let's see, in the, in the resource competition condition, they, um, ev- let's see, everybody moved away from each other. It was, it was, um, it was not linear, let me just say this. <laughs> so basically what happened was they, in the resource competition condition, there was, a, there was like a coming together. People approached one another.
0: Were they like forming groups in order to succeed?
1: I think what happened, what was happening was they were like kind of scrutinizing one another. And then it had like this adverse effect where then they, they pulled apart. So, it, you know, it was a U-shape if you look at it over time. They would kind of come close together and then they would pull apart. And, um, and, and so that, pad- that U-shape pattern was true for everybody, but it was just significantly stronger uh, um, for black and Asian people participants in relationship to one another um in the utopian condition is what we called it um actually there was still a gradual it was more of a gradual movement away but actually the black and asian participants in particular had a gradual movement towards one another
0: so what does this tell us about real life
1: yeah that's a great question um you know, that maybe in in those cases, um, there's actually a sense of affinity between minority groups um, that, you know, the way we modeled these scenarios, what we always had, we, we tried to model uh, white numeric dominance by always having about twice as many white participants. You know, so you'd have a group of 20, you'd have 10 white avatars slash mm-hmm. participants, five Asian, five black, about. Um, yeah, and, you know, when there isn't competition, one, one possibility is that there is a, there's a sense of affinity, that you are people of color together, you're, you're minority group members together. Um, and so there was sort of a sense of camaraderie. As soon as there's competition, suddenly, you know, especially if you think about the way we worded the instructions, like you're trying to find people who are intelligent and hardworking. That was purposeful. That's sort of tapping into these what we call model minority stereotypes of Asian Americans. So suddenly people are, you know, it's really interesting to look at the chat logs because we, we've, and we've written about this. There's evidence that people are in kind of in a coded way, trying to find out if people are Asian. Um, Cause you don't always know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an avatar, right? So, uh, so, Hey, who speaks foreign languages? Oh yeah. What language do you speak? Really interesting. Um, and, and then suddenly the ones that speak Chinese or Japanese are people are drawn to them. Right. So, now, in the resource competition you have you have two groups who are stereotyped really oppositionally, where Asian Americans are are stereotyped as being intelligent and hardworking, and African Americans are stereotyped as being unintelligent and lazy. And so suddenly, you have an idea set that is pulling two groups apart, um, and and it's just interesting to see it in the in the behavior when you watch one of these social events they were only 15 minutes by the way when you watch one you know because we did we would watch them as they were as the participants were interacting with them. you know, you really can't see anything and i remember when i was doing the study thinking like ah, it's maybe kind of a bust um but they were significant mm-hmm. when you you know when you when you actually look at the you know um at it at a really acute behavioral level there is a there is a gradual increase or decrease in the, that are significantly different than the racialized patterns of movement, I should say. Yeah,
0: yeah. So is there an application for this? Or, you know, how how would you translate this for some other researcher to use or take it into everyday life?
1: Um, may I think of a couple of directions um, that we've gone in, in terms of trying to make it more um, applicable beyond this particular study? Um, we... We recently published um, in Behavior Research Methods. Um, uh, it's a secondary data analysis from that very data set. Um, but what we were interested in doing was trying to figure out what kind of metrics of intergroup behavior you could derive from what we call spatiotemporal data. So you have data where people are interacting in a physical space over time, and in this case, I mean it's it's like people are interacting within meters of one another over seconds because we're recording data at every second. So if you have that kind of data, what kinds of, um, movement patterns, uh, can you, can you determine from them? That's a little bit more nuanced than just say moving away or moving towards somebody. So what we actually did was we created, um, overhead still videos of of how the nodes moved in relationship to one another Um, and from and did like a qualitative observational analysis and from that we determined for example we had one movement pattern which you called seeking behavior where people would kind of bounce around between small groups then the next step was to operationalize that with a formula Um, and um, uh, and and then and then see how that metric predicted things like intergroup anxiety for example like on a survey um and so that that paper that we just put out has a series of four different types of movement there was a a leadership style of movement a seeking style of movement uh a we call it like homophily or diversity style movement you know in terms of people interacting with people unlike them or like them um and in and a, and a way to, to operationalize people who kind of avoided social interactions, right? And um, um, and so anyway, the hope is that that's, that that's gen- general enough that if anybody has data that is recording spatial locations between people across time, that these would be, you could use those formulas and, and measure those, those four things and see how they, you know... Um, so, so that's one, one application. The the other is that I've been I've been doing this for a while. Is, um, actually as a teacher, I've been using Second Life in my psych of racism and cross cultural psychology classes because it's an opportunity to like um, walk in someone else's shoes, right? Right? Like, so if you're white, you know, use this Asian avatar for two hours in Second Life and see what you you know what it's like what experience is like yeah what do Um, the students say well i got both i I get some students um that it's it's a really unique opportunity that's unlike nothing else um if we have time i I can give you a a brief example of that Um, i had a student he was a white student he's a french international student he's white and he was assigned to use a black avatar and um he was in a one of the things that they had to do in this assignment was they had to go to a pub. It was called the Blarney Stone Pub. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was it was purpose and and it had a lot of like Irish decor. It was like um, you know I picked it because it had it would be like a very kind of obviously white context. Um, and so he was in there as a black male, and there's a band playing. So what that means in Second Life is there's actually people on a stage that are being run by users somewhere in the world and they're I don't know how they're doing this but they're playing music right and then and then kind the other thing is yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah and the other thing is that you can tip the band like you can give money to the band and um so so he my student is writing about this in a reflection paper and he's saying like oh you know I was like well I'm not gonna tip them because this is like it's not even my account this is a class project you know professor tower gave me this avatar there's no money in it Um, and then he's like oh well so are people thinking i'm not tipping them because i'm black oh right so then he then he kind of just goes with it and he has this whole kind of insight that nothing has to happen you know that, that that's part of the minority experience is that things don't have to happen for it to be taking up headspace and and troubling you you know and i really like that um he shared that because that made me think like okay that's not something you can get from like showing a movie about like right. minority struggles or something like this you know um so i, I was really you know so uh some so, okay so you asked me how do students react so that's those were kind of the best mm-hmm. you know in, from a teacher's perspective but the yeah I, I, some students just kind of like this is not realistic it's ridiculous and you know, wow. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's yeah. not
0: realistic, but right, right. but there are some yeah. elements. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. The, so going back for a moment to, um, to the shooting experiments that, that you did, were your results markedly different from what happens with the traditional tests where you sit at a computer screen and, you know, suspects pop up.
1: Um, we, well, so. They're markedly different in the sense that we're approaching analysis in a completely different way. Again, it's less about is there bias Um, and more about trying to figure out what what predicts bias. Right. So instead of just trying to see is there a differences in uh, in shooting time and um, it's like, what are the, the various cognitive and emotional things that predict Um, bias. And as I said, where we're at right now is that we've looked at this belief set around beliefs about race. We've also looked at one of the things we do is we attach a physiological device uh, to measure stress um, through heart rate variability. Um, And that's another thing that we've seen that when people are stressed, there's a correlation between stress and uh, and quicker reaction times towards black suspects, but that we don't see that same correlation happening with white suspects. The other thing, so, to, you know, what's exciting to me about this is, th- that's really, that's just where we're at. Um, everything else is kind of in the works um, and trying to figure out, much like we did with the, you know, with the Second Life stuff, like now it's like trying to figure out how to make more nuanced measures of things. It's That's kind of, you know, I just, I find it fun, but I think also, um, has a lot of applications, but trying to figure out, for example, that, that the VR set that I have comes equipped with eye tracking. So being able to look at different attentional patterns inside, um, inside the VR. Um, and, and then specifically, you know, we have some hypotheses about different ways that stress and attention patterns interact to actually lead to bias. One of the things that we've seen, You know, so we have the numbers, but we're also watching the screen recordings of the participants interact in these scenes. And one of the things that we're seeing, um, which is pretty interesting, is that when people become physiologically stressed out, they have these attention patterns that seem to go in different maladaptive directions, one of which is becoming just very disorganized, right? So you can imagine if you're kind of looking left and right real quick, and somebody approaches you from the right, Well, even if that person's approaching you gradually because you're whipping your head around left to right, that person's actually approaching you really quick. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing um, fatal errors in that kind. But we're also seeing people go the other way when they get really anxious is that they they lock in. They fixate in a way that's a little bit, um, you know, if you you just kind of decide early on in the scene that this is the suspect and you fixate. Now you're sort of not seeing all the other cues that could lead you to make the right decision. So on the other hand, what we're seeing is a pretty, what seem, and I, I just want to be clear, this is observational. So, what what seems to be, uh, I want to say healthy or adaptive um, attention pattern is, you know, um, having kind of like this flexible, but structured attention pattern. You see people looking at a suspect, you know, then looking at the hip to see if they have a gun, back to suspect, looking left, looking right, back to the suspect. So it's it's not frozen, you know, but it's, so that's where, you know, that's what we see. And now it's about trying to, how, how do you operationalize fixated, flexible, and disorganized eye attention in a 3D 360 environment? That's what we're working on right now.
0: Wow pretty pretty cool stuff that you're doing it's fun yeah. in a way
1: i mean it's you know i i really i don't mean to say that to say like uh, it's just for fun i i really have some confidence that it could could be very meaningful that's obviously why i do it um but there's you know part of me that's excited about yeah that, sure yeah. sure
0: mm-hmm. are you offering the the program to uh police departments at this point is that is that a goal Um,
1: total open invitation but i'm having a hard time (laughs) i'm getting people to accept i understand why do you think i i understand it i mean it's i think and you know we've shot ourselves in the foot a bit as psychologists you know in terms of being what are you doing with our data Mm -hmm. you know i get that like so uh, you know um i have no intention of this I've, i've even said here just now that my my really my goal is not to sort of determine if if there's bias, it's trying to determine within a person what predicts bias. Yeah. Right. And so but that's hard to trust that I, I could go to a police department and say, especially right now, I mean, it's, you know, that I could go to a police department and say, hey, can I assess your officers on this? And mm-hmm. then that I wouldn't just come out with some report saying that this is a biased police department. I understand that. Um, but um that's what I'm I'm, I'm hoping for. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, that all sounds really interesting. So I appreciate you coming by today and and talking with us. This has been Happy to do it. edifying. I'm okay. um, like to spend a little time in Second Life and maybe try yeah. a different it's an that- avatar of a different race and see how that works yeah. out. Yeah. Okay. Just
1: before, <laughs> It's a weird. It's a weird place. Uh, you'll see things you weren't weren't expecting to see. Yeah. But um, but it uh, yeah, like a lot of these things, um, they can be strange and unfamiliar and uncomfortable, but um, yeah, I just am excited about the prospect of them for, for studying behavior.
0: Great. Well, thanks again. And I just want to say uh, before we sign off here that um, we'd like our listeners to, um, to talk to us. We're, we're open to your ideas, so send us your comments, um, maybe topics or guests that you'd like to hear us talk about in the future. You can send these ideas to speakingofpsychology at apa.org and uh, while you're out there doing things like that could you give us a rating in itunes that's really helpful speaking of psychology is part of the apa podcast network which includes other informative podcasts such as apa journals dialogue about new psychological research and progress notes about the practice of psychology you can find all our podcasts on apple stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts you can also go to our website www.speakingofpsychology.org and listen to more episodes. I'm Kim Mills with the American Psychological Association.